Welcome to another episode of the Legal Marketing Studio, the bi-weekly podcast examining best-in-class examples of branding, strategy, content, and technology in legal marketing. Each episode is devoted to a successful initiative, an innovative campaign, a promising technology, or an effective proven strategy for developing new business at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, I'm speaking with PR professional Janet Falk. Attorneys hire Janet to help them get in the news so they attract new clients and maintain contact with current customers. If you've seen someone quoted in a business or trade publication and asked, why her and not me, then you know why people call Janet. She helps clients design and implement strategic media relations programs to promote their timely industry insights to reporters, emphasizing how a service, product, or idea will interest readers and make them call. Making clients' phones ring is her greatest thrill. Janet shares her expertise as a guest lecturer to MBA students and leads workshops for attorneys, nonprofit professionals, and business owners. Janet, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. Michael, so happy to be here. Thank you. So you described to me PR as being a strategic process of building mutually beneficial relationships between organizations and their publics. What are, when you say organization, we're talking about firms and businesses. Uh, when you talk about the public, what are some of these publics that we're talking about? The publics have to be viewed in the broadest sense, Michael. You're talking about your current clients. You're talking about your prospective clients. You're talking about your employees. You're talking about your vendors, your competitors. You might also be looking at regulators who operate in a particular industry that's financial or insurance, things like that. Um, You also have to think about the trade associations that represent your clients. You might want to be building an alliance with some of those. You also want to be thinking about um, elected officials at every level of government because they're going to be enacting legislation that's going to have an impact on your clients. Uh, You might want to be thinking about philanthropy. Um, how your law firm might get involved with different nonprofit organizations, whether as a donor of in-kind services or financial support or uh, providing venues where organizations can hold their meetings. Another way of thinking about a public is to think about your referral sources, uh, maintaining warm relationships with them and making sure that they're up to date on activities in your firm, new hires, expanding into new markets, different kinds of expertise that you're now bringing to the marketplace. So when you think about your publics, you have to look up and down the food chain and all around the circle of people sitting at the table. You know, who's there now? How are you maintaining communication with them? And who's not sitting at the table with you that you want to bring into the loop? So it seems like these aren't, this isn't some big monolithic public. A lot of this is going to be strategic in trying to reach certain people. Exactly. And they all have their own agenda too. Right? They're going to align with you from time to time based on what their particular interests are. Well, let's move to digital, because I think the digital landscape has not necessarily changed everything so much as amplified everything. Before, there were lots of different publics you were talking to, and now some of those publics are very small communities. They're individuals. I mean, it becomes a very different way of communicating. Could you speak to that at all, the way that digital has fragmented exponentially the sense of public? 
I think from the perspective of the firm and how they're communicating externally, they have to have a sense of who their publics are and where their publics are looking for information. Okay, If you're a firm and you specialize in um, intellectual property and you're working in the fashion industry, then yes, you want to be looking out on Instagram because that's visually oriented and that's where those people are going to be looking for new ideas and, and, and sources of information. But I find that in a professional market, a professional services market, a B2B market, um, there's a different kind of information exchange and that's happening more on e-newsletters and e-communications that the individual firm is sending out and it's also happening on LinkedIn where people are looking for resources that will give them timely information about what's happening in the marketplace. Um, to some extent, it's happening on Twitter. Twitter is a mechanism where you can quickly post a link that will drive someone to your website, and that's where they can get fuller information. So when you understand who your audience is and where they're looking for information, then you can be broadcasting to that audience using a particular medium. But it's not only broadcasting. There has to be what is now called engagement. There has to be interaction. It can't be only one way. You have to see what else is going on in that sphere and bring your resource to bear. So it's not enough to say, yes, I like this, or yes, I agree with this, but to say, I agree with this and, and take it the next step, provide some little twist of information, provide a different perspective, something that uh, will make the reader or the audience or the viewer pick up their ears and want to go back to that link and connect and get more detail and more more flavor, more substance about what's happening and why they should be in touch with you and not anyone else in the market. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and what, so you had told me a story when we first met a while back, which I found fascinating because it took these tools and really used them in a very different way. I mean, what we've been talking about so far is really uh, communicating ideas of brand or idea of, you know, ideas of actions or things that are happening in the marketplace that potential clients might want to know. And by giving this information away, you're increasing your awareness and you're increasing goodwill towards a firm. Um, I think those are sort of the, that's the, the traditional PR approach, leaving aside, say, crisis management and that kind of thing. But the story you told me was about using it more as a strategic tool to achieve specific ends within, you know, an issue that was being dealt with at the firm. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if you could tell me, at least in broad strokes, you know, that story, because I'd like to talk, look more at that strategic use of communications, which I think is ever more powerful in reaching very specific members of the public, particularly, as I'm sure you'll mention, uh, those with influence. Right. So, uh, Michael, you're referring to an interesting case. It was a sexual harassment case that was handled by an employment attorney. And the issue had to do with um, a well-known publicly held cable network. And it took place at the production company that was working on a particular show that was broadcast on a network, part of this larger cable company. 
And so I determined that the way to do this was to put pressure on the defendant and to use media coverage that would target the audience, namely the advertisers on that network, so that they would become alerted to what was this issue of sexual harassment taking place at the network. So I arranged for a press release with a link to the complaint to be distributed to industry reporters. And I had already alerted them that I had an interesting case going on. So a reporter from Broadcasting and Cable wrote up a story saying a sexual harassment case had been filed and named all the defendants. And that happened at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. By 5 o'clock in the afternoon that same day, my client got a call from defense counsel so that they would revisit the case and see if they could come to some sort of settlement. Now, what happened in that intervening four hours? It seems to me, and it seemed to my client, the employment lawyer, that the sponsors who advertised on that network read the story in broadcasting and cable, and they became very uncomfortable with the thought of sexual harassment taking place at that particular network, and they made their displeasure known in phone calls to senior executives at the network, and then the call came down the food chain to the attorney representing the defendants. Hence, only four hours later, there was a call to my client talking about how they could settle this case. I think that's pretty incredible. One key part of that is that this wasn't something that went out to, say, the legal press or even the general press, but it was targeted to very specific influencers in relation to the cable company. How important is it in doing this to really be aware of who you're getting this message to in terms of who you're applying pressure on? It's supremely important because it's not until people feel a kick in the wallet that they'll want to take that kind of action. The press release was distributed rather broadly because the company was based in New York and so it was distributed to the New York media. It was distributed to the New York legal media. But, uh, but the focus really was to get the entertainment media involved. And I think that applies in general. I've been in other situations where it's been helpful to put pressure on defense counsel by going after the influencers who could weigh in on a particular case. I can think of another story if you're interested. Uh, yeah, is this the, uh, the, the non-profit? Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. go yeah, run through that, because I think it's a similar mm-hmm. story. But again, it targets key influencers within the situation who aren't directly involved, but who can put pressure on other you know, interested parties to make sure that something happens in the way your client wanted it to happen. Right. This was a case of elder abuse. There was an elderly woman, a Holocaust survivor in her 80s, And she had hired a live-in home health care aide to take care of her. And one day, the aide beat her up. Now, this aide had been contracted with a Jewish social service agency that received significant funding from UJA Federation, which, if you're not familiar, is like the United Way serving many Jewish nonprofits. 
So a number of hours passed, in fact, more than 24 hours passed before this woman was brought to the hospital. And that's how the elder abuse came came to light. And uh, several years passed before she felt comfortable bringing the lawsuit. So I looked at this situation and I decided that the Jewish press needed to become aware of this so that Jewish philanthropists would become aware of this situation. And that's exactly what happened. An article was published in the Jewish Daily Forward, and I know from senior people who are very active in Holocaust-related organizations that it was read by many senior officials both at UJA Federation and people who are philanthropists active in the Jewish community. And they naturally were horrified to learn that a woman who had many complaints against her service continued to be employed by this Jewish social service agency and had beaten up this, you know, 87-year-old woman. So that was very satisfying to me and, you know, naturally to hear that the philanthropic community, the Jewish leadership was uh, was concerned about this issue and that they were going to put pressure on the Jewish nonprofit who had failed in its screening and uh, worker supervision to place such a person in the home of a, of a frail Holocaust survivor. Now, when, when doing this, the Holocaust survivor is not the one coming to you. You're working with the firm, and they're looking for solutions. Mm-hmm. What does that kind of process look like in terms of them remaining within the ethical bounds of the legal market, or the legal industry, I should say, and also being as effective as they can be for their, for their clients? Well, there's, you know, an attorney is supposed to do what they can, you know, for their clients. And they understand what the limitations are of attorney advertising. In this case, I simply announced that litigation had been filed, that there was reference made to the photographs of the woman in the hospital with her, you know, her her nose and her garments all bloody. Um, there was a police report. There were, you know, documents from the hospital. So it was really making available to the press documents that were already cited in, you know, the court complaint. So I don't think that there was any attempt to influence the judicial process. We we were very careful to simply state, you know, this is the situation. Um, the woman was convicted of elder abuse and assault, so it was it was stating the facts. Um, the attorney was very careful to keep within the bounds of what would be considered attorney advertising. When something like this comes up, are you already working with a firm and perhaps suggest something like this, or are they coming looking for a solution like this without having a prior relationship already in place? It's interesting that you ask that, Michael. Um, in both these cases, the sexual harassment case and the elder abuse case, the people were referred to me by an intermediary. Um, in the sexual harassment case, the employment attorney asked a colleague, do you know anything about press releases? And the fellow said, no, I don't. You should talk to Janet Falk. She'll take very good care of you. In the case of the elder abuse situation, um, someone who was the guardian 
of the Holocaust survivor asked the executive director of a nonprofit where he was chair of the board if he had any PR contacts. And so the executive director with whom I had worked previously referred him to me. So both were on a project basis. So it sounds like in both cases, the firms were aware of this as a, an opportunity for them. How often do you think firms make use of the media in cases like this? And is there an opportunity for firms to, in some sense, get a, a business advantage by doing so? I think the larger firms, firms that have more than 100 attorneys, have a marketing professional on staff, and they often have a communications professional on staff if they're, if they're larger than two or 300 attorneys. I know of one firm that every time enters a new matter, they flag it and they send it to the marketing and communications team. And that person is able to go back to the person who opened the matter and say, is it possible that, A, we will be able to talk about this to the media at some point, B, we will be able to talk about this in our marketing materials, or C, this is going to involve so much confidential and proprietary information, we're never going to be able to talk about it. So all the new matters that get open are flagged for potential communication and marketing activity, or else they're marked not appropriate. It's really up to the individual attorneys, and it's up to the communications professionals to keep tabs on what may or may not be appropriate for discussion later. Um, When I worked at a public relations agency, where I was embedded in a law firm and I, I sat in practice group meetings, I would say to the associates who were working most often on transactional matters, but occasionally on litigation, before you close this situation, make me number 17 on your list of 20 things that are going to happen so that they always had me top of mind as a resource for promoting the win or promoting the transaction or using media coverage, as we said, to put pressure on defense counsel and prompt them to act. I assume that the firm that does this as a matter of course with every new issue, I assume that's a large firm. It would be difficult for a smaller firm, I imagine, uh, and more so even for a solo attorney to be thinking so proactively about the communications on every issue. But is there, is that something that attorneys should be thinking about, even let's say a solo or a a small firm of five to 10 attorneys, should they be thinking about the opportunities to promote what every single issue that comes through the door or looking at opportunities to use it as a a tool to put pressure? Well, there's there's three kinds of situations, um, generally speaking, where you're keeping track of what's happening in the industry, where you're creating a news event because you're announcing a win or you're filing litigation or you're concluding a transaction, or you're watching what's happening in the marketplace and there's going to be a breaking news opportunity. And so you position yourself in front so that reporters will call you in the process of writing up their story. Once the story appears, it's already too late. And as we were saying earlier, that the digital landscape where you can be maintaining these relationships and engaging with people in the media 
allows you to do all of those things more easily than in the past, uh, but also perhaps makes it more difficult to be top of mind without being very active. Well, I would say that um, reporters are looking for sources in a variety of venues. So we've talked about, you know, opportunities in, in the new space. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I think most important though are the, the opportunities to creatively use these communications tools, uh, not just to put your story out there and to communicate your brand and to pat yourself on the back, but to really move the needle in advocating for clients. Uh, do you have any, you know, sort of closing thoughts on creative strategies in PR for going outside of sort of the traditional roles that it's played I think if you reflect back on what I was saying about the multiple audiences, the multiple publics and their different agendas and where it is that they're going to be looking for information, where it is that they're going to be looking for news, where it is that they're going to be looking for resources, then you see that you have to be present in all those places. So you have to find ways to align yourself with these audiences and show that you are trustworthy, that you are authoritative, and that you are available and responsive. So making sure that you understand your audience, their agenda, their source of referral, their source of information, that's key. Janet, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business. The theme music was composed by Ryan Knock of Knock It Out Music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. We can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com there. It is just legalmarketing.studio. If you'd like to appear on the Legal Marketing Studio or know someone who might, please reach out to producer at legalmarketing.studio or via the contact page on our website, legalmarketing.studio. We are always looking for people doing innovative things in legal marketing. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. 